I'm really excited that the guest on this podcast is Reverend Valerie McEntee. Valerie is the night minister at the San Francisco Night Ministry, and we had a wide-ranging conversation that I really appreciated, so I want to thank her for coming on the podcast. As always, if you feel so inclined, we'd really appreciate it if you could donate to the San Francisco Night Ministry, and thanks so much for listening. Here's my interview. I thought a good place to start would be for you to tell me a little bit about your background and what brought you to night ministry all those years ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was uh, on the ordination track in the United Church of Christ, and one of the people who was on the ordination committee that had to approve me for ordination was also an assistant night minister here at night ministry, and said, I think you would make, you know, you'd really like to volunteer on the phones. And so I did, and um, found out I did really like it. And not too long after that, um, I was just graduating seminary, just getting ready to be ordained, and this fellowship became available. So it was going to be two years, 24 hours a week. Um, And Lyle, my predecessor in this role, um, invited me to apply for it. And I did, and... And I got, I was, there were three, Monique had one of the other ones, (laughs) and uh, Diana Wheeler, who's not with Night Ministry anymore, was the third fellow. And um, so I got the fellowship, and I went home and looked at our manual ministry, and it was enough to get me ordained in the the UCC. You have to have a calling to get ordained, so I was very excited uh, to have it for that reason, but just also because I already loved Night Ministry uh, from volunteering. Mm -hmm. Um, And so two years came and went so fast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and when it was over, I said to Lyle, I love this. I'm not leaving. Um, and so I was hired as an assistant night minister. And so I just worked per diem until 2018 when I stepped into this lead role. Great. And do you remember, you? so you really enjoyed being a CLC, a Caroline counselor back in the day. What did you like about it initially? Do you remember? Hmm, I liked the variety of it. I liked encountering people and conversations that I wasn't encountering in a, in parish life. Um, I just, I really, I found it interesting. I found it fun. I found it, in those days, we could we would take longer times with our callers sometimes. So just being able to take all the time somebody needed, um, I really, really liked that. And that's something I really appreciate about work on the street too is you can just kind of take all the time somebody needs and so many of our folks folks who live on the margins of our culture or our society um don't have anybody who can just really take a lot of time for them Mm -hmm. Uh, their social workers are overwhelmed their case managers are overwhelmed they've all got like 200 people on their caseload and so they're just cranking through as fast as they can trying to get their job done um, so I loved just being able to be slow and take my time with people mm-hmm. and, and give them all the time that they wanted and they needed rather yeah. than me deciding, you know, time's up and i got to go. Yeah. yeah, that really that really resonates with me, the idea of giving people the time they want and they need. And there's something that seems really countercultural about that. Yeah, yeah, I think it really is, and, and getting more so as the years fall by, it's... I mean, maybe it's just my bias, but it feels like we're just going faster and faster and faster as a culture. Um, And I'm not a fast person, and so I love um, to have work that allows me to slow down. 
um, and, and work at a, at a pace that kind of feels in sync more with like a Kairos time. You know, I feel like we're all on clock time and it's just like boom, 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 stopwatch kind of time. You know, but we have this concept too of, I'm sure you're familiar of Kairos time, of God's time, which is to, in, to me just so much bigger and more expansive. And um, I guess the word I want to use is generous. Like it's a generous kind of time where you just kind of get all the time in the world. Um, you know, I think of Ecclesiastes, you know, and a time for everything. And I also feel like when I hear that scripture, that passage, it's not just that everything has its appointed time, but there's enough time for everything. Um, and I think slowing down kind of slips us into that kind of a time stream rather than this clock time, you know, check off the box, efficiency, get it done kind of a time stream that we in the U.S. anyway, we seem to kind of live our lives in that time stream. Totally, yeah. And in, in describing time, you use the word pace. And that reminds me of the the, the literal pace which, with which we walk down the street. So I, I'd like, maybe you can describe a little bit for people who are less familiar with the night ministry, what it actually looks like to see you on the street and maybe a little bit about the pace. Sure, sure. Um, so we walk slow, um, which is good for little old ladies like me, <laughs> but it's good for a lot of reasons. And I had to learn to slow down because my children and their dad are tall. And so I was always rushing to keep up with them. But going slow helps in a number of ways. Um, first of all, if you look like you're rushing somewhere, nobody's going to approach you because they think you're in a hurry and they don't want to interrupt. Um, but it also doesn't give people time to process. Uh, it's, uh, you know, when you're wearing your yarmulke, I'm wearing my collar, people have to have time to see that, to notice it, to go, oh, maybe I want to talk to this person. And like, you know, that processing doesn't take all night, but it takes a couple of minutes. And so if we're moving slow, uh, then people have a chance to do that and approach us. And as you know, our approach is very gentle. And so it's really important to give people a little processing time to decide to approach us or to respond to, you know, us just saying, hey, how's your night going? You know, and by then, if we're going slow enough, they've already had a chance to kind of figure out that we're not just another person rushing down the street. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I've, that has really registered with me is how the different night ministers within the framework of the night ministry have different approaches. So I'd love to hear about how you would characterize your approach and also how you developed that approach over the years. Um, so my approach was influenced a lot by my predecessor, Lyle. Uh, he kind of, he, all the night ministers that were here at the time trained me. Um, that was one of his things, um, to learn everybody's style. But I spent a lot of time with Lyle, and he's slow, and he's has the same kind of gentle approach that I do. So a lot of it I just kind of learned from Lyle. Um, but the kind of the heart of what's underneath the way I approach people is I recognize that almost everybody we're dealing out dealing with out there is in this world where everybody has some idea of how they could be living their life better or what they want them to do and they're always whenever they're seeking care not always but almost always when our folks are seeking care somebody's trying to tell them what to do or how to do it different 
and not maybe really listening to why they're living their life the way they're living it. And so that recognition it sort of undergirds what the way I work, which is I really want to take some time to hear not just how people are doing, but like why what's going on for them is going on for them. Um, let me try and think of a way to explain it. Like, uh, it's a lot of our folks choose to use drugs. And if you have this kind of slower, gentler conversation that doesn't have an agenda attached to it, things will come up. Um, one person, uh, you know, always picking up little rocks. I don't know what that is. But once I had taken some time to build rapport with this person, I asked them and they said, oh, it's part of how I displace my anger. Is this t to get their focus somewhere else? Well, anybody else, you know, some you could just walk down the street and you see somebody picking rocks out of the crack. You're going to think, oh, like that person has like OCD or there's something psychological going on there. But for this person, it was just their strategy of how they displaced all this anger that you know, that once you know about their life, you're like, oh, yeah, I'd be really mad, too. But if you don't take time, people aren't going to tell you that. Or if you don't have time to uh, really sit and listen and get to know them before you say, hey, what's up with that? I'm curious about that. You know, rather than like, why are you doing that? You know, <laughs> you know, why are you wasting your time doing that when you could be doing something else? Um, and that, that sort of non-judgmental approach that I think most of we night ministers take, and I certainly do, is just like this curiosity of like, oh, I wonder what's going on here. And usually people have good reason for doing what they're doing. We might make a different choice, you and I, in their circumstances, but it's not just this random thing that people are doing because they haven't thought about it. Um, and when you go a little slower, uh, you have time to learn about that and gentler. That's fascinating. And... One thing that's coming to mind for me is this idea. I think there's a psychologist, I think his name is Carl Rogers, who says the only way to change is to accept that you can't change. So the idea is like this radical self-acceptance can actually be transformative. Yes, 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 yes. It's um, whenever you're imposing an agenda on somebody or on yourself even, I feel like that my experience, yeah, I don't I want to say stronger than I feel. My experience is that is very constricting. And it doesn't leave any room for any change. Um, you know, it's almost like putting a, a plastic bag over a little tiny plant and just not, it doesn't, then it doesn't have any room to grow and bloom. But if you take that off and you give some space, then there's room for change to happen. Um, and I've seen that over and over and over again. Um, I have permission to tell this person's story. Um, had a regular for many years. Um, she's since deceased, but she had long since said it was fine to share her story. Uh, she did a lot of cutting. For decades, she'd been cutting. Inpatient care, outpatient care, all kinds of psych care. And they had done their best for her and made behavioral contracts and all these things to try and help her not cut. And the focus was always on don't cut, don't cut, don't cut. And Lyle and I both worked with her quite a bit. And we said, cut, go ahead. I used to keep gauze in the back of my car. <laughs> and she would always have razor blades. And um, go ahead, cut. You know, and then afterwards, like, okay, what do you think about going to the hospital? She always needed stitches. She didn't mess around when she cut. I said, cut, 
if you need to do it, do it. You know, I know you don't like to, I know you feel ashamed afterwards, but it's just the way you're coping with all these horrendous things. Uh, and she had, she had one of the hardest life stories I've ever heard. And that's saying something after a decade plus <laughs> of night ministry, worse than vets, worse than anybody. Uh, and this is how she got the pain out. And it took a long time. But working with her in that way, she went from cutting every couple of days to cutting every two or three months. I mean, huge change in the course of a few years. Um, but that's after everybody had thrown every kind of other care that they could at it. And she had worked really hard at it herself. She wanted to stop cutting. And so she had an agenda for herself. Everybody else had this agenda. If you violate the behavioral contract, then there's consequences, blah, blah, blah. Nobody ever said, oh, that's your coping mechanism. Just do it. And doing that consistently and not judging it was what opened up the space for change for her. And I could tell you a hundred stories like that if I had people's permission. Hers I happen to have permission for. Wow. That's so powerful. And that reminds me of another thing we've talked about a little bit, which is that your night ministry and the night ministry collectively is an ongoing practice like you we're not gonna no one's gonna transform in one night so can you talk a little bit about sort of the ongoing relationships you have yeah it's very different here than you would have in a parish in some ways not in all ways but in a parish like you know everybody's phone number you know where they live you know like they're all in your directory or your synagogue or whatever in your faith community like you have a directory and you you keep uh, track of your congregation and you know or your faith group um and so you you're in people's lives for a long time kind of consistently often you know unless they come in and out of your faith community quickly which does happen on the streets sometimes you meet somebody one time and you have kind of an amazing encounter and you never see them again um but a lot of our folks we see over and over and over again for years and it creates trust when we just keep showing up, even though we're not like on a regular schedule of like always being in the same place at the same time or anything like that. I find it does create a high level of trust among a group of people who have really hard time trusting authority figures. And, and we are, you know, with our collars or our yarmulkes or whatever on. Um, there's a lot of trust that's built up and sometimes we can, because of that, we can help people in ways that if you're just a police officer who's never met them before, although the cops end up with relationships with a lot of our folks too, or you're a social worker who's never met them or doesn't have this relationship, we can do things um, that others maybe can't because we have this long-term relationship or just even a lot of our folks, there's so much backstory you know, like, it, all the crap started when they were, like, two, and now they're 45, and it's just ongoing. And so if you know someone over time, eventually all that story comes out. And so when they come to tell you about the latest thing, they don't have to give you the whole background. They know you already know the whole background, and they can say, this thing happened. And you can go, oh, my gosh, just like your brother, that must be driving you crazy. You know, and you can have that kind of rapport of knowing somebody well um over the years yeah yeah you spoke a little bit earlier about how you began this work and i'm interested in hearing about first of all how how long have you been doing Nightwatch? oh let's see i started 
training for the phones right at the end of 2007, and I started as a fellow in August of 2008. Okay. Uh, so I guess we're coming up on 13 years of, on yeah. the streets. And that's a really long time. That's, so <laughs> it's, it's kind of a long time. <laughs> so I'm interested in how you've sustained yourself and, and what keeps you going. Um, the most fundamental answer to that is that I love our folks. Um, I It took me a long time. I learned how to burn anger as fuel. Uh, anger really works for some people. For me, it's kind of toxic in my body. So when I learned how to burn it up and use it up as fuel, it was really helpful to me. But it burns fast and it doesn't last. Love is a much, much more sustaining fuel for me. Um, and so that's that's kind of the baseline of what sustains me is I, I love the people that we serve um, I also and I did right from the start like as soon as I started it was like oh this is right just like that feeling of clicking into place of this is what I'm called to do this is what I'm meant to be doing um, and I always maybe not always but for a long time in my life I had had I guess a tendency to like hang out with unhoused people or talk to unhoused people. I was already kind of, I used to have a courier service here in the city years ago and I had like all my regulars then that I would like stop on the corner before I turned at the light and say, hi, how are you? And you know, and then eventually you're taking them to dinner later on, you know, whenever you get to know people. Um, so I was always getting to know people in the margins and I've always had an interest or an eye for like who's getting left out who's not being noticed. Um, and that's the person I want to go notice. Um, that's always just been a um, proclivity of mine mm -hmm. um, as far back as I can remember. So I think that kind of makes this work a good fit for me because yeah. our folks are so disregarded by the larger society uh, and they know it. I mean, they, will, they just know that people don't care and it's really, really hard um, on them to know that the larger society just doesn't care what happens to them and so it's I think it's really helpful for us to be out there saying somebody cares what happens to you um, it was really highlighted during the pandemic when people would say you were the only one checking on us you know and we've since learned that like hand sanitizer isn't as important as masks but like giving out all that hand sanitizer landed as care for people and, and we were giving out masks too but it, it landed as somebody cares yeah, that makes me think one of the things that I struggle with the most as someone from San Francisco is the extent to which it sometimes it feels like people in general in San Francisco and the government and all these, everyone is is addressing the homeless problem, not from the perspective of caring about the homeless, but instead of they're worried about clean sidewalks or keeping business going and right it's like and it's, it's an aesthetic issue instead of a justice issue <laughs> just yeah. drives me crazy <laughs> drives me crazy yes yeah yeah so it drives me crazy too and i guess i'm wondering do you have any ideas about how to address that and how to how to help people realize these people's humanity yeah, I think, you know, it's not that, you know, 98% of the housed people are jerks. You know, it's it's not that. I, it's that I think 
it's very normal for human beings to separate the world into us and them. I, I, I used to know a guy who had done his um, PhD in xenophobia, and apparently there's some part of our brain that like just automatically does that. So natural human tendency, I don't want to be shaking my finger at people for that. Um, unfortunately, it has these tragic consequences of people being stuck outside. Um, so I try, when I talk to housed people, when I go give a talk at a church or a community group or something like that, I try to approach it with compassion. And one of the things I really like to say is I don't like to see unhoused people either, you know, because I don't want people suffering like that is my reason. I'm not worried about the aesthetics of it, but I just say, you know, I don't like to see it either. The best way to not have to see unhoused people is to give everyone housing. It's not effective to just have DPW come steal everybody's tents and belongings. Uh, the city's been doing that for ages and it does not work. The best way, if you really feel uncomfortable or you're mad or you don't like this, whatever your reason is for not wanting to see unhoused people in your neighborhood, the best way to deal with that is to advocate for housing. And so I just, I kind of beat that drum with people and hope to build, you know, if enough people were kind of beating on the politician's door saying, house people, house people, house people, I think it would get done. And there's, there's not enough of that. There's an, a lot of people beating on the door saying, get rid of the tents, make people go away. But if all that energy was put into saying, house people, they would house people. You know, it's especially right now, there's a ton of money from the state. There's money from the feds. There's a lot of money to get people inside right now. Uh, Governor Newsom just signed a bill. Um, I haven't read all the details of it yet, but it's like $12 billion or something like that. And it's cheaper to give people housing than it is to do all the things that we do when they're on the street. It actually costs more money to leave someone living outside. So it's just baffling to me that we do it so I kind of I just I throw out all those kind of facts and I think sometimes it changes people's mind yeah in this vein what are what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions about unhoused people and about and maybe about this work too that that you find yeah so the most common misconceptions about unhoused people is that somehow it's a choice or it's um, like personal irresponsibility, you know, and you know, okay, sometimes personal choice plays into it. Sometimes people make some choices for their lives that are not the most helpful. But what people don't understand is all of that is taking place in the context of this system, unregulated capitalism being the system that demands that some people be poor. There's no way for Jeff Bezos to be able to be firing a rocket into space if somebody's not living outside if you're living in a system of unregulated capitalism. Capitalism is fine as long as you put enough brakes on it. Um, I don't have any problem with capitalism, but unregulated the way we have it with no brakes on it, it becomes extractive. And whoever is good at extraction is gonna hoard all the money, like all the really rich people you can think of. Um, they're hoarding. We don't think of it as hoarding. We say it's hoarding in somebody's SRO room when they have, you know, everything and you can't open the SRO room door but that's nothing compared to the way people hoard money and because they hoard money there's not enough for everybody so I think that's probably the biggest misconception about people who live outside is like that the system is somehow set up that somebody doesn't have to do it right now the way we're set up somebody has to do it that's a job in unregulated capitalism it's an it's like an ecological niche that's going to be filled unless you change how you do your capitalism 
for us, for our work, the biggest, it was right from the start. I remember my stepmother giving me pepper spray <laughs> when I started this job. And lo- the long johns were very useful. And I love you, Gloria, if you're listening. But uh, I thought, no, I'm not going to use pepper spray. <laughs> and people think it's dangerous. And it's just not. No more than any, you know, other, you know, dozen things you could name that are probably a lot more dangerous, you know, climbing up to fix telephone wires or whatever that's a lot more dangerous. Um, people have this conception that the folks who live outside are dangerous, and therefore we're and people like, ooh, you walk alone? Oh, do you carry pepper spray? Oh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Like, I'm just talking to people. Talking to people is not that dangerous. <laughs> it's really, really not, you know, and it's, um, as I would with any human being, I don't know. You know, I take my precautions, but really our folks are just folks. They're human. They're the same kind of people as you and me. Their circumstances are different, but they're not different kind of people. And so that, that misconception that our work is, is somehow dangerous or heroic or, you know, even all that dramatic, is, which, I mean, you've probably seen for yourself already, a lot of it is just conversations that aren't even, it's not... They aren't even high drama conversations. It's just being present for people. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about something I've been thinking a lot about as a CPE student, which is the tension, the creative tension between offering counsel and advice and just being a compassionate listener. And I'd be really interested to hear how you navigate that tension and when you when you like when you decide to offer more than just listening and how do you make that decision and and how do you navigate that balance yeah so a really good piece of training i got when i did my cpe was that everybody has their own answers our job is not to give them the answers our job is to help them see the answers they already have Um, and it really coheres with my experience and there are ways to do that. Narrative assessment, hope-based assessment, blah, you know, all these clinical pastoral um, assessment. You guys, I think, probably learning the Enneagram some because Trent loves the Enneagram, but there's a whole slew of pastoral um, assessment tools out there. Um, so I use a smattering of those uh, with people, but I really, as much as I can, I err on the side of listening. Shutting up is an art. And I think it's a really good art for any clergy person to learn. Um, so I do as much shutting up as possible. And I try more to draw the answer out of the other person than to hand them the answer. That said, and, you, and you'll be taught that in any counseling, whether you train like as a therapist or a pastor or any kind of counseling, people will tell you do that. Um, don't give advice, don't give advice, don't give advice, which, which is true and, and a good guideline. However, if people say, no, I just really want to know what you think, sometimes I'll say, well, here's what I think. You know, and then they won't do it anyway. But I won't, it's not a state secret what I think in most cases. So if somebody is saying to me, I really want to know what you would do or what you think I should do, I'll try and draw their answer out. But if they're really adamant that they want to hear, I would say, like, I would dump that guy. (laughs) You know, what I hear is he's not treating you right. I would dump him. You know, and then they don't dump him. But it's, I don't, 
I don't avoid it like the plague giving advice, but it's sort of like a last resort if somebody just, you know, is insistent that that's what they want to hear. I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to follow their lead of what they say they want in their care. It's kind of a, a core tenet of trauma-informed care is that you give the care seeker as much control uh, and choice as you can, not unlimited, but as much as you can. So if they're saying, I really want to know, you know, do you like chocolate or strawberry ice cream better? I'll tell you, you know, but I just, I, it's, it's not my first go-to. Yeah, one thing that's really struck me, especially on the care line, is the extent to which the people we work with or people in general probably really know what they want and what they need. Like it's really shocking almost how much just being quiet and reflective listening mm-hmm. people will produce their own answers. Yes. Yes. Uh, I would say that works like 99.9% of the time. And then once in a while, somebody actually does want me to say, Dump them. and then they won't anyway. <laughs> That's the other experience of like, people don't listen to my advice. So it's kind of a waste of breath, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so I want to think a little bit about the practice of listening, which is sort of, the focus of my podcast and I'm wondering like what has been what have you what have you learned about listening in all these years Mm. so I have a lot of ideas and opinions as you probably (laughs) noticed and I've learned that it's a really good idea to just put those on the back burner and hear the other person's experience and hear what works for them um the fine art of shutting up is your friend. It just, I, the more urgent the situation seems, the more urgent it is that I shut up. Uh, somebody wants to kill themselves and they have the razor blade in hand. My job is to shut the heck up as long as I can because they'll just keep talking. And then I have something to work with to help them. I'm a little more directive if somebody's actively suicidal, like trying to draw out where's the hope or the agency or the connection but you know uh, but even in a situation not that fraught um, the more fraught the situation the more I want to shut up but I really it's almost like it makes it hard to talk to my friends because I'm so used to just listening like they finish and then they're like so what about you and I'm not used to saying what about me (laughs) um yeah, listening is, it's, it's an art, it's sacred, I really think it's sacred, it makes, it, it takes you into that, that other stream of time, that, that slower kind of Cairo stream of time where there's time for everything. Um, listening is one way to really make space for that and kind of slip yourself out of this checkbox clock time and into that time. Uh, listening is a tool for that, if you do it right. Um, it's, you know, uh, I early, early on, I think maybe it might have been my first or second training on the phones. The woman training me said, uh-huh, is your friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you can, and when I'm in person with someone, I tend to even just like, I don't even say that. I just nod or I make a hand gesture or, I, you know, or if it's appropriate, like, oh my gosh, you know, roll my eyes. Like, yeah, I totally get it. Kind of a gesture. Uh, I say as little as possible and it makes that big sacred space that people will just keep telling you all these things that they wouldn't normally say. And the more quiet you are, the more people will try and fill it up because we're not used to silence in our culture. And say, all you have to do is be quiet and people will spill their guts to you. And then that gives you what you need. 
to say, oh, you know, I heard you say this. That sounds like you're giving yourself good advice, you know, and then that's all you have to do and point out that they already just told themselves the answer. Well, Valerie, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been it's been really wonderful to yeah. hear to hear more. Yeah, so thank you. This was fun. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Thank you again to Reverend Valerie for coming on the podcast, and thank you all for listening. I hope you all consider donating to San Francisco Night Ministry. Thank you, and take care.